As we're coming to a conclusion of uh, Matthew 17, uh, let's just refresh our memory. Jesus goes up to Caesarea Philippi, and as he's up there, they go up to what they call the Mount of Transfiguration, where uh, Jesus, Moses, and Elijah appear. Jesus is glowing. Uh, His deity just explodes out of his humanity, and uh, Peter says, you know, let's build three tabernacles, and and uh, then all of a sudden, God the Father speaks and says, this is my son. Peter, shut up. Listen to him. They all fall on their faces. Um, and then when they arise after Jesus says, don't be afraid. And they look, there's only Jesus standing there. And God wanted to manifest his glory and just instill in them that you, you don't put equal footing with the law and with the prophets along with Jesus. It's Jesus. And, and Peter gets that. So do James and John, as we studied in later passages that they wrote, they never forgot that moment. And God's glory will allow you to see his majesty manifest in your life. You've got to have that vision of the Lord. You've got to see him for who he is and how, how magnificent he is. And Peter, James, and John got that. And while they're up on the mountain, they come back down, uh, the four of them, Peter, James, and John, Jesus. And as they're coming down, the other nine disciples who are at the bottom of, of the mountain uh, have been contending with a man and his son trying to heal him of demon possession. He's been moonstruck. Uh, and, and everyone's laughing at him, and they can't seem to deliver the demonic oppression out of this boy. Uh, and Jesus comes over and he says, oh, you have little faith. How long shall I endeavor with you? And then he, he says, come out of him and return no more. He heals the boy. And, uh, and, and they come up to him and they say, how'd you do this? He says, this one comes out by prayer and fasting. And we covered that in the previous study last week. So his glory is manifested on the mountain. His majesty is manifested in the valley in the midst of all the trials. And they get the lesson. And now it's time to go from the north up in Caesarea Philippi at the headwaters of the Jordan. And they have to come back down to where Gennesaret or Galilee is, back to the, the center point where all of Jesus' ministry uh, was centered. And that was in Capernaum. This is where that synagogue was that the, the centurion built for the Jews. And we're going to go there in November. It's a really cool place. And, and Peter's family lives there in Capernaum. And so they come back into Capernaum after seeing the glory of the Lord and the majesty of the Lord. And as they come in, uh, walking in this valley of the trials of life, it, it's, a, just, it's a nanosecond before they get back into Capernaum, a nanosecond that uh, Peter is confronted by the IRS. <laughs> and it's three verses where they come up, they say, hey, doesn't your master pay the tax? And uh, Peter's like, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, you know. <laughs> And he's kind of worried because he knows, well, he doesn't know, but there never seems to be any money in the money bag with all the disciples because we do find out later that Judas is dipping into the till and messing with the money. Um, and, and so he doesn't know how to pay it, but he's put Jesus on the line and then Jesus tells Peter what to do. And it's really fascinating. Um, and, and he, you know, the Lord is interested. And what's fascinating is this, this tax is due in the month of Adar, which depending on scholars, it's either March 15th or April 15th. Pausing for emphasis. But at this point, it's in the fall, kind of like it is now. So Jesus would be in arrears with his, his payment. And we'll cover what that all is. But I wanted to open with a little funny. So here we go. It's time to pay my income tax. And brother, that's no joke. For after paying the IRS, I find that I are broke. As April 15th draw at nine, my spirits start to droop. A poor downtrodden slave am I. In short, an income poop. I thought these were funnier. <laughs> I'll do the comedy. Income tax. <laughs> Income tax is almost due, and this makes me today another shaking member of the IOUSA. All right. Let's move on. Let's stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. We're going to pick up at verse 20, 24. Excuse me. When they had come to Capernaum, those who received the temple tax came to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the temple tax? They form it in the negative, kind of like, when did you stop beating your wife? Does your teacher not pay the temple tax? And he said, yes. And when he had come into the house, Jesus anticipated him saying, what do you think, Simon? From who do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes from their sons or from strangers? Peter said to him, from strangers. Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. Nevertheless, lest we offend them, go to the sea, cast in a hook, Take the fish that comes up first, and when you have opened its mouth, you will find a piece of money. Take that and give it to them for me and you. So that's what we're going to do on April 15th. We're all going to go fishing. Amen? Who's with me? I want to read a couple of verses to you while you're still standing and bear with me. 
Uh, Pastor Mark Lesney, who is our college and young adults minister, is starting uh, on Sunday, t- today at three o'clock, a college group over at One Love Church to breathe life into that church have the college students get engaged, and he's teaching through the book of Galatians, and uh, the title of it is No Other Gospel, and I, I love the title, and I'm excited about what he's doing, and he has such a unique gift for that, that, that generation, and here's what it says in the opening portion of the book of Galatians, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than that which we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than that which you received, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. And then one last reading. Peter wrote this after his experience um, in Capernaum and with Jesus. He wrote this in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, therefore... Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. So he's assuming we're doing good. It's the contrast. For this is the will of God, to do good. That by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. And listen to this. Honor all people. Honor all people. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. It'll all make sense. Let's ask the Lord to do it. Lord, we do ask that you would lead us into all truth, Holy Spirit, and that you administer to us, cause us to understand the depths of this passage, that it would be so applicable to our lives and to our community. And Lord, thank you for the men and women who long to hear from you and to take these truths and apply them in their life. So bless them in the hearing of the word that their lives, our lives, would be forever changed. We love you, Lord, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, relax. Not too much. In this, um, in this passage of Scripture, it's, uh, it's an interesting one because three small verses, but it deals with so much in three small verses um, and, and you look at it, and it deals in a sense with the law of nature and nature's God, which is one of them. Uh, we see a picture of taking God at his word. And then in addition, we see the history of this tax laid out uh, or, or the importance of this tax as Jesus pays it. Um, now, what they're asking for when, when Peter comes into Capernaum and those that receive the temple tax come to Peter and they said, does your teacher not pay the temple tax? And, and, and Peter responds by saying, yes, meaning he does pay it. But he didn't quite understand their question the way that they phrased it. And they were trying to trip him up. Now, this is in the late fall. The, the taxes due in the month of Adar, which is, again, March 15th or April 15th, depending on the historical view of it. And this is the late fall. So in a sense, he'd probably be in arrears. But really, this tax had been going on for 1,400 years. And we find it in Exodus chapter 30, uh, the outline of the tax itself. And, it, and I'll read it to you. Um, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, when thou takest the sum of the children of Israel after their number, then they shall give every man a ransom for his soul unto the Lord. Then thou numberest them and there is no plague among them. When thou numberest them, this they shall give everyone that passeth among them that are numbered half a shekel after the shekel of the sanctuary, a shekel is 20 geras. A half shekel shall be the offering of the Lord. Everyone that passeth among them that are numbered from 20 years old and above shall give an offering unto the Lord. That's males 20 years and above. The rich shall not give more. The poor shall not give less than half a shekel. And when they give an offering unto the Lord to make an atonement for your souls. So the purpose of the tax itself was an atonement for their souls. And it was only to be done by the males 20 years of age and older. And it was only to be done once in the course of their lifetime. Well, they had taken it through the course of 1,400 years to be once a year, um, and, and though the temple had been built, they're saying, well, is this a civil tax or a temple tax? Is this ceremonial or civil? And they're trying to deal with what is the issue of all this, and, and actually this tax was done away with in AD 70 when the temple itself was destroyed. And we also find in Nehemiah that it went from a half shekel up to a shekel. A shekel is uh, two days wages, and so um, they, they pose this question to Peter. 
And, um, and, and as I said earlier, they form it in the negative. And he, re- he responds by saying, of course he does. He only uses one word. Here he's babbling before, you know, God the Father and Moses and Elijah. But when the IRS comes, he's really serious. Yes, you know, he doesn't babble like he did in front of the Lord. Uh, just that was my observation. I thought maybe you'd be intrigued by that. And, and then in the course of this, when he, he doesn't know what he's going to do because he doesn't know where he's going to get the money. It's two days wages and he's left everything to follow Christ. He hasn't been working. Whatever they have has been put in the kitty that uh, Judas is, you know, dipping out of. And he, he, he made an affirmation in the Lord's behalf and now he's got to go and process it. And as he's walking probably to his mother-in-law's house near the temple or excuse me, near the synagogue, uh, Jesus preempts him. Knowing all things, he preempts him. And as he preempts him, uh, he said, uh, what do you think, Simon, from who do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes from their sons or from strangers? And I love this because it's almost like, uh, uh Peter's saying, well, that's a dumb question. You know, it, 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 the king's children are always exempt, right? Hello. I'll give you an example. How many people were told that you would get to keep your health care, uh, your get, keep your doctor and your, your premiums wouldn't go up. Well, let, let's do it in the reverse. How many of you didn't get to keep your doctor and your premium went up? Either one of those. Doesn't have to be both. Just please show hands. Just show hands. So you see that is a little odd. Now, the Congress and the Senate aren't under that authority. They don't have to deal with what we deal with. They're exempt. Anybody enjoy that? So those in authority will always use that authority to benefit themselves and those that are closest to them. That's the nature of man. That's the nature of man. And listen, for us to decry them, the minute you get into that spot, you'll be going well. And, and everyone has a human nature, and that's why we have to put it in check. And that's why we have a check and balance system in a sense. And so Peter says, that's dumb. I mean, the king's going to look out for his kids, and he's going to impose the tax on strangers. And it's, it's easy. They're just the, the, the nameless mass, and, and I'll, I'll exact taxes from them so that I can live off of their labor and enjoy myself in what I do. And this is the picture that Jesus is addressing. It's such a profound comment. It encapsulates so much of our culture today in the simple statement, who do you think, Simon, from who do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes from their sons or from their strangers? I mean, for all of us, we're like, yeah, I get that. And the Lord got it, and Peter got it, and everyone who was listening, and for 1,400 years prior and following, everyone still feels that way. It's good to be the king. And, and they're irritated, and we just decry those in authority and the way that they make these laws that oppress us and, and, and enrich them. And we, we struggle with that. We struggle with that. And so we come to this place where he's now having to pay this tax, Jesus preempts him. He doesn't know where the money's going to come from. He agrees with Jesus in his statement that they take it from strangers and we got to come up with it. Now, by the way, this tax, you want to talk about tax exemption and people go, oh, ministers are tax exempt from paying social security. Okay, whatever. Um, I pay taxes just as much as all of you do. And, and, and yet they got this idea that, that money donated to the church is tax exempt and um, housing for a minister is tax exempt and we aren't required to pay into social security but we also don't get social security if we don't pay into it uh, and that that there's a whole series of that and debated through the united states of america but it comes actually from the scriptures themselves that the levites and the priests were not required or that it, it was required that they wouldn't pay the temple tax they were exempt from that and thus, 1,400 years later, after this is instilled in Exodus 30, uh, they also look at rabbis, teachers not having to pay it. And even in California, we, we are, I think we've approved or working to, to approve that teachers don't pay this tax. And they, they go through that the Levites weren't required to pay the tax. So, and it's an atonement tax. So let's just think for a moment before we go any further. Who of all people on the face of the earth at that moment don't need atonement? Atonement means covering for sin. Mm, Jesus. Yeah, do you get it? He was without sin. You're following me? We're going to go into a lot more, so you better wake up. Uh, so he doesn't have to pay a ton. In addition, they call him rabbi, which means teacher, so he's exempt on that regard, and you go through the order of Melchizedek. I mean, he is exempt from taxes if anyone's exempt. And he could sit there and contend with them and say this, but, but he, he jumps in, he says, 
the sons, uh, the, then the sons are free, meaning the king's sons. But then he adds in verse 27, nevertheless, lest we offend them, go to the sea, cast in a hook, take the fish that comes up first. And when you've opened its mouth, you will find a piece of money. Take that and give that, give them, uh, give it to them for me and you. Now, when it says piece of money in the Greek, it's drachma. Drachma was two, um, uh, it would be four days wages. So a shekel would be two days wages. A drachma would be four days wages. So what he's saying to Peter is the coin that you're going to find is not only going to pay my fee, it's also going to pay your fee, your tax. And what's really cool about that is it takes Peter off the hook from having lied because technically Jesus has, has given the money to Peter. Now it's Peter's job to give it to the treasury. If they're to look on the book, say, well, we don't see it recorded here. He goes, well, I have it. He gave it to me. And so Peter's off the hook as a result of what Jesus did off the hook. This is kind of cool. Um, the only time we see in scripture where they're not casting a net for fish, this is a hook. It doesn't say even use bait. And, and think about the in, in insanity of this, the intensity of this. You're going to cast the hook into the water and the first fish that you pull up, reach into its mouth and you're going to find that coin. And he lists what that coin is. What are the odds? First of all, how did that coin get there? Somebody lost it. That fish had to swallow it. And this is what's called a Nile perch or what we call tilapia. And the Sea of Galilee is laden with them. And back then, before it was overfished, it's still laden with them. And he puts this in. They're so hungry. I mean, if you've ever gone up to these, some of these uh, uh, little small lakes up in the Sierras, they haven't seen anyone come. And you really don't need bait. You just throw th- something sparkly in and they bite on it. They're so hungry up there. And, and this is what happens. He puts the hook in, the fish bites, he opens it up, takes it out. Now, I say that assuming that it happened because we don't find it recorded that Peter wrote about the conclusion of that and having gone to pay that tax with the coin that he received. But even still, how, how do we know? How do we know? Well, you have to take God at his word. First um, Kings 8 says, There has not failed one word from all of God's good promises. You know, you want to keep good records if you're doing taxes. So let's look at 1 John 5, 11, 12, and 13. This is the record that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life, and he who does not have the Son does not have life. These things I have written unto you that you would believe on the name of the Son of God, and that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may believe in the Son of God. And so the picture on that one is, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Now, if you want the writing of it, and this is one of those things, I can't wait to get to heaven and go, tell me about that. So were you freaked out? Was it, I mean, take a look at this. This is, this is the best picture I could come up with uh, in relation to it. And it's, what do I do here? Am I broken? Just give me the first picture. I mean, that's, that's what I found on the internet. And I don't really think it's a good picture because his face doesn't look amazed. I mean, I'd be like, are you kidding me? Oh my gosh, this is unbelievable. I got another one too. Look at the next picture. There it is hiding in there. No bait on the hook, just right in the lip there. And there's the coin. You can close it for now. And, and, and so he, he, he gets this. Now, how did this happen? First of all, Jesus had to know where the fish was and that the fish had a coin and that somebody had lost the fish and then command the fish. And you're saying, well, how does the Lord do that? Let's get to the passage of scripture that would say this. Uh, Obviously, as I said before, somebody had to lose the coin. The fish had to be taken and retained by Peter and Peter, the hook had, everything had to fall in line. I want to read you out of Psalm 8. For you have made him a little lower than the angels, speaking of the Messiah, Jesus, and have crowned him with glory and honor. You've made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put him over all things and put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen and beasts of the field, the fowl of the air, the fish of the sea, and whatever passes through the paths of the sea. And then we also, that's, that's, that's Psalm 8. And then Genesis 126, the, you see the second Adam demonstrates that he has recovered what the first Adam had lost, this dominion over all of creation, dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And, and so really what you have is you have the law of nature, and it almost seems contrary to nature, but all, all the animal kingdom operates by instinct, and they're drawn by this, so it's the law of nature, 
And then we also have nature's God, which is Jesus, who has authority over all of nature. Yes? And so this fish ends up, and this is how it's done. And you go, well, that just baffles me. Now, uh, let's go to the, to the declaration if we can. Next one. Now, this is our Declaration of Independence, and you guys have seen it before. It's not the first time I've put it up, but I want to focus on something here this morning. When in the course of human events, that means any time in the history of mankind. This wasn't specific for the United States of America. This was for mankind. You'll see it in a moment. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature, that fish, and nature's God entitled them. A decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to this separation. So let's turn that off and take a look at me if you would. If, if there was an unjust law, this is it. And to exercise that law on the Son of God, who is not only exempt in need of atonement, but he is also God himself, and he is the temple, and that's what it's all about. If there was ever an unjust law uh, being exercised on a citizen, this is it, very clearly. Yet Jesus says, nevertheless, that we don't offend them, go ahead, and, and he bypasses by, by having dominion and power over nature, through the law of nature, he points out to Peter, just put the hook in and we've got this covered. So, it's a bad law. So let's go to law. It's a bad law, let's go to law. I asked this on Wednesday night, what is, what is a country? And somebody said, a place that has borders. <laughs> I had to laugh, I'm like... Okay, yeah, I guess. Nobody, he got it. I thought you would laugh. First service, way funnier than you guys. But what is a country? A country is a, is a group of citizens that agree to submit under a series of laws. To dwell together, we have to have rules, laws. Whether those laws be good or bad is dependent on those establish them. Yes? Now, good laws, bad laws, those are metaphysical statements, good and bad, good and evil. Now, if there's good, then there by nature has to be bad. There's right, there's wrong. Yes? So, we have the founders declaring, you can bring it up again, we have the founders declaring in the Declaration of Independence that they have the right, when it becomes necessary for people to dissolve political bands, boundaries, to establish other boundaries, to connect us with one another, to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and nature's God entitled them. And then they go on to say, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the cause which has impelled them to be separated. We got to tell you what has been violated so that we are breaking away to create our own boundaries and our own series of laws to protect our people. These are unjust laws. And I said on Wednesday, what's the difference between a dog and a child? Both come into the house as a puppy and as a baby. They grow up together. And I asked, what's the difference between a dog and a child? And they said, a a dog is much easier to raise and easier to get along with. I thought, yeah, okay, that's true. Um, But what happens is the dog grows, the child grows, and the dog learns how to communicate its pain and its pleasure, and that's about the extent of it. A child starts to comprehend the laws of nature. They understand as they start to learn basic mathematics, they learn basic fundamentals of, of reading and writing and they can make sounds that they can now see the images on a page with some markings that equate to the sound that they made and they can now write that down and transmit it without speaking and a thought can be transmitted because they have the ability to communicate and they communicate not just pain and pleasure but but they start to understand the laws of nature and nature's God and they come up with all kinds of ologies, biology, physiology, psychology, sociology and they study all All of these, this unified diversity to to come to an understanding of the laws of nature, nature's God, and they communicate. And in the process, as Aristotle said, a child differs from a dog in the simple fact that they don't communicate just pleasure and pain. As they mature, they communicate for the sake of just and unjust laws. 
And that's where we come to a place where we learn early on the child says this, it's not fair. Anyone ever heard that from their children? They're already dealing with the concept of just and unjust. It's not fair. Now in the room is the entire gamut of the political spectrum. But I will say this, you hold the position you do wherever you are on the scale of the political world because you're motivated by what you believe to be just and unjust. Can I, can I get an amen? amen? Their intentions are, they, they, whatever your political view, your intention is, that's not fair. And you try to formulate an understanding of how to get equanimity in society. And and that's what we do. And even Jesus points out in this passage that nevertheless, so as not to offend them. I mean, really, why are they getting taxes? Do their kids pay it or do the strangers pay it? Strangers pay it. Unjust. But Jesus says, nevertheless, so as not to offend, go put the hook in. And what he's doing is, this is the law of nature and nature's God. We'll, We'll overcome an unjust law by the law of nature and nature's God. What's my point? My point is this. Our founders got it. They understood that if you want just laws for mankind, you must begin with the supreme lawgiver. Isaiah 33, 22 says, the Lord is our lawgiver, our judge, and our king. Three branches of government, executive, legislative, judicial branches, all listed. They're all listed in the Declaration of Independence, interestingly enough. But they appeal to the law of nature and nature's God, and they go on to list all of the grievances of the injustice of the king and then they pledge their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor and they, they call on divine providence, God, to protect them for that cause. Now, this is what's fascinating about it. If you have an unjust law, how do you handle it? Well, mankind has been struggling with that for a long time. We think, let's make all men equal. I take from you, give to you, from, from, uh, the, from, uh, from those according to their ability to those according to their need, and everyone has the same. And that doesn't seem to work. Billions have died under communism. Socialism, put the government completely in charge. Well, that, that affects our desire to want to excel because they take more of what we earn and, and it takes away our, our motivation. And we go through all these things, and the bigger the government, the smaller the citizen, and, and it's hard to have identity in the midst of all that. And then on the face of the earth, in the span of world history, along comes this, this document that's 241 years old that appeals to the law of nature and nature's God, that this is instilled in every human being, that they come to a place of understanding what is just and unjust. Now, I say this because today at 3 o'clock, now, it's in the middle of our baptism, and, and I, I don't like to give uh, conflicting opportunities, but this is one that I really feel compelled to tell you about. I was blessed by our, our pastor on staff, Mark Glesney, and he works with our young adults in our college ministry. And he is an entrepreneur. He's a, a, a wonderful businessman. He, he does, he's a fitness guru. And he has this unbelievable ability to communicate with that generation. One that at 53, I am losing quickly my ability to reach them. And so he is, and I gave him a tall order. I said, I want you to teach on theonomy on Sunday nights. And as we're turning kind of a, a page on Sunday nights to go towards more waiting on the Lord, and the college group was looking for a night to meet. So he, the, the suggestion came that he goes over to One Love Church, which is this new work of Pete, Pete Nelson over at the Skyline facility, and at three o'clock he'll do the college group. And that's great because all these young people with this fervor and this zeal will bring, breathe life into One Love Church, and, and it'll be a really exciting opportunity. Well, and then I was really blessed when I, I saw on, on his Instagram that he's going to be teaching uh, no other gospel and going through the book of Galatians and the passage that I read you that you're turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. And he's going over there and the kids just love his teaching. And Pastor Mark and I, 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 I look at him and I think, man, you've got so many gifts and skills and I can't reach that generation. And to his credit, he is endeavoring with me because at 53, somebody who grew up uh, walking precincts and, you know, being political and understanding the United States of America, and this is my upbringing, his is a generation at, at his point and then, 
younger that is apathetic and almost disillusioned with the political process because of all that they've endured, right? And the two of us are trying to mend this together and figure out how to do it. As iron sharpens iron, one man sharpens another. Now, that's a grinding process, but it's still, it's really helpful. And, and I, I look at that generation, I think to myself, why are you apathetic? Why are you so disillusioned? This is important stuff. And they look at me with the same disdain, not disdain, but they look at me with frustration. And I'll tell you why they have frustration. I experienced it Thursday night. And I got to understand them a little bit better. And it was Pastor Mark who's helped me to see this. Thursday night, I went to a meeting. And I don't know if you guys have been following in the, in the city of Thousand Oaks, the Conejo Valley Unified School District. And they've been dealing with books in their curriculum, whether or not they should be banned. And so I sat in this meeting on Thursday night and two school board members showed up. More would come, but it'd be a violation of the Brown Act. So we had two of them there. Uh, one school board member who voted to ban the book and one who voted not to ban the book. And we sat down in this room and the person opened up, one person opened up by reading three excerpts from different books and saying, guess which book is not banned by the Conejo Unified School District? And as they began to read this, it was, it was nauseating because it's so graphic, so disgusting, and I'm sitting through this and it's turning my stomach, it's frustrating me, and they're reading and they're reading and they're reading and it's just images are just hammering you. And I'm, I'm, I'm sickened by it. You, you couldn't print this in the acorn, it's so bad. I'm serious. You would go to jail. It's that bad. And as I'm sitting there, then they conclude by saying, okay, let's take a poll, which one of these is not included? And it was kind of a trick question because they're all included in the recommended reading in the Conejo Valley Unified School District. At which point, the first school board member stands up to speak, and this is a person that voted to approve the middle book, which was bad, awful. And they went on to explain why. And they happened to be a very dear friend of mine, and they explained, we want to seek parental notification. We want to change the culture and the environment. We want to do it through a process and through time. We want to build relationship with the teachers and the things that they're facing. We want to strengthen families to be able to opt out. And because this book wasn't going to be taught by any teacher, we assumed it would just be politically okay to allow it to go through and then address it as we develop this, this process later. The other school board member said, no, it, we're not going to do it. Now, what I can say is after they had given their explanation, they opened it up for questions from those that were in the room, and one person began to just hammer at this person. And it got to a point where, in my estimation, it was angry and a, a little bit caustic, and I was, I was upset by it. Another person chimed in, and the tone started to grow, and then it came from the back, at which point I said, stop. I'd been introduced as a city councilman. I just said, please stop. They've come here on their own accord and they deserve civility and kindness and the office demands that respect. At which point both of them yielded and I was grateful. They're a good group of folks in that room. And as more questions began to come, I had to leave and I didn't have time to hear the second school board member speak who also happens to be a very good friend. And I just simply said this, at the beginning of our time, you read three excerpts. I want to read to you two. And the first one I read was the, the American Crisis by Thomas Paine. These are the times that try men's souls. The summer soldier and the sunshine patriot when the season shrink from the duty of their country. But those who defend it now. And this was instrumental in inspiring the troops in Valley Forge to have the Battle of Trenton turn the tide of the war. Fascinating writing. And the second writing, I qualified by saying, I find the next writing to be one of the most vile writings and one of the greatest insults to me as a Christian minister that I could possibly ever read. And I began to read it. And it talks about how Christianity is responsible for misery and despotism and on and on and on. And it's just hokey and just filled with, and, and I read it. And I said, both were written by Thomas Paine. I said, one, one writing was instrumental in establishing the country. And another one ended it, it caused him to end up in prison in Paris to be delivered by others from the revolution. And then as I thought about it later, have you ever heard of the three-fifths compromise in the Constitution? This is where our founders put in the Constitution the three-fifths compromise. It says, a slave can only be counted as three-fifths of a person. And, and 
you know, revisionist historians say, well, this is proof that they, they saw blacks uh, less, as less human. But in reality, the reason for the three-fifths compromise was that you had 13 colonies that were trying to find unity to establish a government in 1787 with an impending attack from Britain, Great Britain, as they were preparing to come and take back which we had taken from them. They had to come to a consensus, and the southern states were slaveholding states, and they, every founder, even if they owned slaves, and you just check their writing, they all abhorred the institution of slavery. So what they said was, with the upper house and the lower house, the Senate and the Congress, the Congress is established by population, how many representatives you get in the lower house. And so they said, in the southern states where you have small population, you cannot count a black slave or a slave who is held uh, uh, not on their own free accord or under indentured by debt. You cannot count them in the population to have representation in the house. So they would be three-fifths. The attempt was to legislate slavery out of the system and proven by 1787 with the Northwest Ordinance that any state that came into the Union could not be a slave-holding state. Slavery could not be permitted in any of the new states. Now, those books are vile, and everyone in the room agreed those books are vile. There was nobody in the room that disagreed with that, but there were different approaches to how to resolve it. And as bad as those books are, the question I have for you is, do they even equal the vile institution of slavery? No. And yet our founders attempted to legislate slavery out. We could look at that and say, that's unacceptable. And William Lloyd Garrison was an abolitionist. He said, no. Now, Great Britain, or the British Empire, excuse me, ended slavery 35 years before America did without a shot being fired. We drew the line and 650,000 people died on a field of battle. And my point to them was this. They were prepared for a greater enemy, and everyone in the room agreed that this institution, this vile institution of slavery, had to be abolished. But how to do it, they all disagreed on how to do it, and they had to come to commonality. And what we end up doing as Christians is we devour one another while the enemy rises. And I was given a letter written to one of them. And, and the, the point is, and I've received letters like this countless times, I walk precincts for you, I voted for you, and I demand this of you. And I've gotten letters like that. Now, what is my point? My point is, when we read in Peter, it says, honor all people. Honor all people. Love the brotherhood. Fear God and honor the king. You know why young people don't want to get engaged? Because they hate the visceral nature of politics, how it's always attacking people. And we come to a place where our responsibility is that the world would see us as different. Politics is not power. Submission to the law of nature and nature's God is power. Humility before the king. Nevertheless, so as not to offend them. We'll address this later. That's Jesus. So if we want to be effectual in our community and in our world, we have to apply this idea of honor and love that they'll know we're Christians by our love. We don't devour one another. We endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace through humility and tenderness. Now, that's what they witness. The letter that was written, or uh, there was actually four that I read, but the one letter that I did read, I will say this. I like the letter. My flesh liked the letter. I've received them before. But that's a reaction, not a response. Remember the story I told you about Abraham Lincoln that when he would be insulted, he would write a letter with his emotions and then he'd sit on it until he had a love for the person he was writing. And in the Lincoln Library, you can see stacks of the letters he wrote and the few that he, he sent. Well, that's us. We reflect Christ. And, and as I look at this, I was moved by 
Thursday night. And it touched me with Pastor Mark and what he's doing there with the kids and the two of us trying to work this out to the point where Pastor Mark taught theonomy on Sunday night. And he, he taught about how God has the authority to be involved in our, our lives and in our family and in our church and in our community. And he's teaching these young people. And our job over here is to give them an example of how the implementation of the law of nature and nature's God applies in a world done through the love of Christ. Nowhere in the Declaration of Independence do they demand and they work through these ideas and appealing to God and the higher nature of man in respects to that. I, I want to conclude our time together and I'm going to read to you. And if you're tired, you're going to be way tired when I'm finished. <clears throat> but I would ask, please, with all that you have remaining in you, please pay attention to what I'm about to read to you. It's going to put it into perspective because what we have in America today is those that just think the gospel is simply personal and for salvation purposes, it's not to change the world. And then there are those that, in a sense, abandon the gospel and put more emphasis on changing the world and see the political power, and they lose what God has called us to, that we're to love one another as Christ has loved us. And in the middle is where we're supposed to be. Bear with me. The main message of the gospel for our modern preachers seems to be that our individual salvation is the most important goal of God, and Christ came to serve and achieve that most important goal. Thus, the modern view of the gospel in many churches doesn't differ too much from the pagan view of the pagan religions. It, in fact, doesn't differ from what pagans would want Christianity to be, singular and non-effective. Many things are excluded from the gospel, culture, justice, family, history, science, etc. The gospel of our modern preachers is strictly limited to one area, only me and mine. But what is the gospel according to the Bible? Can we limit it to the individual salvation of souls only? Can we diminish the Christian message to it's all about having a personal relationship with Jesus? Can we agree with those Christian ministers who say that the Christian social action cannot be confused with the gospel? What is the gospel? What is its proper area of operation? And what are its proper limits according to the Bible? In finding the true nature of the gospel, we need to start with the fact that there isn't a single verse in the Bible that limits the message of the gospel to individual salvation only. <clears throat> the Bible doesn't say the gospel is only for this, but not for that. There is no language of this, but not that when the message of the gospel is discussed. No biblical author limits the gospel in any way. People are saved individually. That is a fact. God is in the business of bringing people to salvific faith based on the sacrifice of his son on the cross, but that's not where the gospel ends. It claims, its claims and its message are comprehensive and they encompass all of life. The gospel is not defined as a gospel of salvation except in one place only, Ephesians chapter one, verse 13, where it describes what the gospel does, not what it is. And even in Ephesians one, the language doesn't imply any limitation on the message and the meaning of the gospel. The gospel is defined by Jesus as the gospel of the kingdom, thus pointing to its comprehensive content and intent. Jesus didn't focus his ministry on the salvation of individual souls. In fact, in many places, like Matthew 13, which we studied earlier, he seems to deliberately turn down opportunities to save people, focused instead on the higher goal, teaching his disciples about the kingdom. I want to stop there for a moment. On Wednesday nights, I'm teaching the American legacy, and many people would, would accuse me of not preaching the gospel. Be mindful that the gospel is far bigger than our myopic view of what it is. The higher and comprehensive reality of the kingdom of God was so central to the gospel as opposed to the simple individual salvation of souls that Jesus spent 40 days of his post-resurrected life on earth explaining the kingdom to his disciples. In the last chapter of John, the first chapter of Acts, where we learn about his post-resurrection ministry, the word salvation is not ever mentioned. The central theme there is the kingdom. Again, the meaning, a universal rule of Christ over every power and authority in heaven and on earth. And often quoted but misunderstood by our modern churches verse is John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. In the idea, 
uh, in the ideology of modern theologians and pastors, this verse is almost universally interpreted to mean God's main goal and therefore the gospel's main purpose is to convert people and save souls from hell. But this is not what the verse says. Salvation of souls is not the goal at all. It is only a means to a higher goal. The verse starts with a higher goal. God so loved the world. God's attention is shown here directed to the whole world, not just to individual souls. The language of another central passage for the New Testament evangelism, the Great Commission in Matthew 28, which we'll cover in time, is just as universal and comprehensive. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, Jesus' statement. The basis for preaching the gospel is thus established, the total comprehensive authority of Jesus Christ over every area of life in heaven and on earth, even the way we treat one another. Now, if the gospel was only concerned with the salvation of individual souls, then such a foundation is a serious overkill. For snatching souls out of sin and hell, Christ doesn't need to establish the fact of his comprehensive authority. We're saved, we are saved individually by his sacrifice on the cross. Why does he need to mention his total power if the intent, the content, and the end of his gospel were strictly individual? And indeed, the rest of the Great Commission is only a small reference to the individual aspect of the gospel. Baptize them, he says, which we'll do today with many of you who have professed Christ. And this is only a, as, a, as a means in the context of a greater comprehensive worldwide focus. Disciple the nations, teach them to do everything I've commanded you. And by the way, the Greek text doesn't contain the phrase make disciples. The exact meaning is disciple the nations as nations, not as individuals taken out of the nations. If the gospel was limited to only individual salvation of men, then we can't find much sense in the words of Jesus in Matthew 10. And you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say, for it will be given you in that hour what you are to say. The individual salvation of men is the same for kings and for common people. Why would the disciples worry about how or what to say to kings and rulers if they're only to talk about individual salvation? Pay attention to this. What is the testimony to kings and rulers that is different? The only plausible answer to this question is the comprehensive nature of the gospel, the law of nature and nature's God. The fact that the gospel speaks to all of life and therefore it speaks to every man in his specific area of authority and dominion under God. Kings and rulers have no problem when their subjects are concerned with their personal salvation. The real difficulty lies in telling a king how to rule according to everything I have commanded you. And indeed, we see the Christians were persecuted in the Roman Empire not because they preached individual salvation. They weren't the only ones to preach it as a matter of fact. Rome had a special pantheon. All gods uh, were where every new God or savior was duly registered and adopted in the service of the empire. But Jesus was different. What, what made him different and why were the Christians persecuted is simply this. Their message was not limited to individual salvation or the personal life of the believer, but was a comprehensive challenge to the empire itself. Those words in the declaration of independence echoed through the world. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for a people. This was a mandate that they would know the truth and the truth would set them free. That they could live under a system of laws that would allow them to seek justice and not, un, not, not to be under the authority of unjust rule. In the words of the persecutors themselves, when they persecuted Christians in Rome, and we find this in Acts 17.7, they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, Jesus. And that's what they were accused of. That's why they're persecuted. It was the comprehensive nature of the gospel demanding the submission of all earthly powers to Jesus that earned the Christians a persecution. The sweet picture of heavenly salvation never produced such persecutions. The statement of Jesus' authority on the earth over every area of life, including politics and culture, did. A verse that is used to support the truncated view of the gospel, modern day, is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and which also you stand, by which also you are saved. If you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you as of first 
importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Indeed, this passage that I just read looks like it limits the gospel to individual salvation, but the citation is not complete. Listen. The passage logically continues until Paul says about the reign of Christ, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. And that doesn't mean that everyone comes into submission by our browbeating them to death. Submission comes because we've loved them. Do you understand that? We're different. We endeavor and we love. And we're kind. And we're thoughtful. And we're patient. And we're smart. We're wise. We're tender. And we're unified. The subjection of all powers, all authority, yes, including earthly, political, social, economic, and other authorities to Christ as part of the gospel message. Excluding it from the gospel means truncating the gospel to a pagan mystery religion, one of those that the Roman Senate would have readily accepted in the pantheon in Rome. Paul talks even more explicitly about the comprehensive nature of Christ's gospel when he comments in Romans 8 on the nature of our deliverance from bondage. I'm almost finished. Explaining that the Spirit testifies that we are God's sons free and redeemed. They may be free from taxes, but we are free because we've been redeemed. And he who's been given much to him, much is required. Love others as I have loved you. He doesn't miss the opportunity to remind his readers that this deliverance of our individual souls is not the goal in itself. It is only a means to a higher goal and purpose of God. For the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subject to futility. This is Romans 8. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And as the founders understood this, our job is to set men free. We are saved not just to be saved. God has a higher purpose for us. Apply our deliverance and salvation to the whole of creation. That, does that mean our social, political, economic, and world as well? Yes. The verse says the whole creation. In the same epistle, while explaining the practical impl- impl- implications of the gospel message, Paul also includes the duties of the civil ruler. He must be a servant of God. Now, by the way, a civil ruler who must be a servant of God, where do you get a civil ruler for, like that? from the children of God. But we don't do politics. It's dirty. That's because we're not there. It's the gospel in the whole of creation. The world needs the truth and just laws to set people free. This very claim was considered treason in the empires, as we saw above. Christians were persecuted for that specific reason, claiming that Christ was a higher power than Caesar. In the empire's political constitution, Caesar was God and he couldn't be a deacon of any other God. The gospel, however, did encroach on Caesar's realm and requested his subjection to Christ in all, including his policies. And by the way, more than half of Rome were slaves. And because of the gospel and the transformation, all of our child labor laws, all of the deliverance of slavery, our civil rights laws, they've all come from Christians. The whole gospel including criminal justice. Justice Stephen Breyer said that all of our due process laws came from Christians. That's not a very conservative justice, by the way. Modern theologians and preachers, to the contrary, Paul didn't believe or preach any dichotomy between the law and the gospel. The gospel did include the law, as is obvious from Paul's statement in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. There, after explaining the Uh, continuing validity of the law of God in matters of criminal justice and saying that the law is good when applied to criminals, Paul doesn't hesitate to add, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Paul is clear here. The gospel he preached was not limited to salvation of individuals. It did include every power and every authority, including civil powers. The gospel Paul had been entrusted with required the righteous use of the law and therefore the punishment of the crimes Paul listed by the law. Paul was faithful in obeying the Great Commission 
The nations must be taught everything Christ had commanded, and therefore the gospel message included the law's provisions against civil crimes. Any truncation of the gospel to only personal salvation would, be, would have been disobedience. Much more can be said about the comprehensive claims of the gospel of the Bible. One thing is clear. Those who limit the gospel to individual salvation of men's souls do not preach the biblical gospel. The biblical gospel is the gospel of the kingdom, a comprehensive declaration of the total authority of Jesus Christ over area, every area of life, including fish in the Sea of Galilee, including politics, culture, economics. And when we fail to make that declaration of the gospel to the whole of life, we only serve those that want the demise of Christianity. And I conclude by simply saying this. The two school board members, they stepped into that world. And it is hard I want to say it's hell, but I'm a minister. And they're, they're neck deep in it. And they're contending in the arena to bring just and unjust. And they're applying everything God's given them. I was watching the city council meeting. We were doing the same. We're contending for Calam Water who wants to stick it to the, to the city. I could count on one hand the number of citizens who showed up. This is our world. You want just laws? Then it, it has to be by the law of nature and nature's God. And who are the people? Where do we get civil rulers who understand what is good? From this room. We receive from the Lord and we give to others. You don't truncate it so it's simple. And you don't get behind your bunker and lob bombs while they're engaging in the arena, we're there with them. And the one thing that all observers notice is that we love one another. We love them. That is why those kids don't want anything to do with a gospel that's to be all-encompassing because they want to see it modeled. We honor all men. We love the brotherhood. We honor the king. And we do it right. This, this so convicted me. I, I, I don't like to be attacked. And yet, people are not the enemy. They're the object of God's love. They're the opportunity. They're the whole world. And we love them and we do our best not to offend them. And we're smart and we have wisdom from our mighty counselor who navigates us through these halls of justice that we would bring justice and they would know the truth and the truth would set them free. They want the exact same thing that you want. They just don't know how to do it. And how are they going to know unless someone tells them? And how can we tell them if we don't know? And the easiest thing would be to truncate the gospel and make it simple so that we don't have to be involved. It's just about raising your hand and getting dipped in the ocean and that's your only requirement. No. There's a world to be touched. And the way we treat one another, everyone is observing us. And so Christian, honor the Lord. Honor mankind. Love the brotherhood. Honor the king. Step into that world because the gospel even encompasses fish in the Galilee who bite a hook that has no bait to pay a tax that he didn't have to pay to speak to a world he came to set free. Peter got it. We got it. May God bless you. Amen. Lord, thank you for your word. We thank you that it is all-encompassing, the gospel. And Lord, you want to affect all of mankind and you do it by the way we love one another. Greater love has no man than this and to lay down his life for a friend. That we would set an example that would touch generations to come by the way we treat one another. That we would endeavor through wisdom to find the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. That our gentle answer would turn away wrath. That a word fitly spoken would be like apples of gold and settings of silver. That we wouldn't want our pound of flesh or demand what we want, but 
Lord, we would be anxious in nothing, but in all things, by prayer and supplication, we would wait upon you. And Lord, you would ordain it and establish it. And we would seek not to offend. And we would choose not to be offended. And Lord, through this, this process, your gospel would affect every aspect of the world. And the men and women would be set free. Lord, let us study to show ourselves approved unto you. Workmen who need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, that they would know the truth and the truth would set them free. Lord, thank you for this congregation that has endeavored to do just that. And they've been patient with this process as we've grown together and we've come to understand what it is you want to do in and through us. Lord, I pray for all five of our school board members that a peace that would surpass all understanding would guard their heart and their mind in Christ Jesus. Give them wisdom. Lord, I don't hate any of them. And I don't love more than the other. I I just ask, Lord, that you would bless them and thank you that they're willing. They want the same thing. They just don't know how to go about doing it. But God, you've given us the ability to engage in that, to help them. And so, Lord, a servant speaks when they're spoken to and offers their opinion when they're asked. I pray for the council. I pray for our supervisors. I pray for all those who would step into civil service, that you would give them wisdom from on high, the laws of nature and nature's God, and that they would be just. And Lord, we thank you we have you to appeal to. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.